Well, I'm going to go ahead and invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, do not fret about that. We will get the words to the sermon passage on the screen behind me. But you will be served well, as always, to have a Bible open uh, during our time together around the Word. We are in the second sermon of 48 planned messages in the book of Romans. Uh, Romans is one of those books as a pastor that you are constantly aware of as you think about the life of a congregation. It is such a wonderful book in many ways, and now the Lord has seen fit to allow us to look to it on Sunday mornings for quite some time, should he give us life and sustain us here at CBC. Our text today, Romans 1, verses 8 to 15, and our text from two weeks ago, the first seven verses from Romans 1, are effectively Paul's greeting to the Roman Christians his introduction of sorts to his letter. And so this sermon, like the one two weeks ago, will be of the greeting and introductory sort. On Romans in general, just as you are maybe still turning to Romans 1 in your scriptures, Paul is the author that is not debated. This letter was written in the middle 50s AD, probably in the year 55 to 58, written most likely from Corinth to the saints in Rome, the church there. Paul, we learn in the letter, had never been to Rome to be with these saints bodily at the time of his writing of this letter. Some other things become clear too as we read through the book of Romans. There were Jews and Gentiles in the church of Rome. That's going to become significant in a number of ways. Romans is, friends, a remarkable letter. It is unusual in length, and in terms of a book on its own, it is the most comprehensive and systematic presentation of Christian doctrine that we have in the Scripture. Paul engages throughout with the Old Testament, and that engagement with the Old Testament is noteworthy. If you were here two weeks ago, we thought about the gospel that had been promised from the Garden of Eden. Like all of the apostles, Paul saw all of Scripture as a cohesive whole. And he saw all of Scripture as a testimony of Christ. We will see these things as we make our way through this letter over the coming months, Lord willing. Romans has been a significant book for the saints through the history of the church. We could talk all day about the number of people who have been affected, saved even, by reading this book. But I'll offer this morning the words of John Calvin. He says, quote, When anyone understands this epistle, He has a passage open to him to the understanding of the whole Scripture. Close quote. With all that by way of introduction, let's look now to our text for today. We're going to be considering Romans 1, 8 to 15. Given that Romans 1, 1 to 15 is Paul's greeting, we're going to read the entire thing from Romans 1, 1 through 15 this morning. This is the Word of God. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you 
as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Amen. We thank the Lord for his word today and every day. My plan this morning is to offer a two-part message. Part one, I want to consider our text, verses 8 to 15 of Romans chapter 1. There will be some observations and even some brief reflections interspersed. And then part two, given that Paul is introducing his letter in Romans 1, 1 to 15, I want to give us a sense of the entire letter. I want to prepare us, in other words, for God willing, what we're going to be looking at in more detail over the coming months. Trust that's clear to you. We will embark now, part one. In verses 8 to 15 of Romans chapter 1, we're going to see effectively three things. These are not going to be like systematically arranged headers for you or anything, but we see effectively three things. One, we see Paul's affection for the saints in Rome. He cares for them. He loves them. Second, we see his desire to come to be with them in person. He wants to see them. And then lastly, he spills some ink regarding his purpose for coming, his design in coming, his agenda even. Why does he want to go to Rome? He tells us. So we're going to see all those things in verses 8 to 15. Let's put our eyes on verse 8. Paul begins here by saying, first, that he is grateful for the saints in Rome. More pointedly, he is grateful, thanks God, through Jesus Christ for them. He makes particular mention of their faith in Christ that is proclaimed in all the world, he says. Again, notice that Paul thanks God through Christ for the saints in Rome. That language is not insignificant. This implies that the fact that they are Christians in Paul's mind is because of God. And that their faith, of which Paul is thankful, that is proclaimed in all the world, that faith also is God's doing. It is noteworthy as well that Paul, in thanking God for the Roman saints, brings their faith to the foreground. As Robert Haldane wrote regarding Romans 1.8, it is not the piety of the saints at Rome, but their faith that is here noticed. Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord, but it is faith in Christ that is the distinguishing mark of the Christian. In verses 9 and 10, Paul indicates that he prays for these saints regularly. This is evidence not only of his gratitude for them, but also of his affection for them. He prays, he says, that he would be able to go and be with them. Something that he has desired to do for some time. He's going to make that very clear later. But he has not been able to accomplish in God's providence. And then we come to verses 11 and 12. He says, I long to see you. And he says that he longs to see the saints in Rome so that he may impart a spiritual gift to them to strengthen them. He wants to come and be with them in their midst in order to minister to them. He wants to be used of God to strengthen and encourage them. And as an apostle, he was certainly called and equipped by God to do so, right? But then, beginning in verse 12, it's like he stops his thought midstream, all by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, right? Stops his thought midstream and modifies what he's saying. He says, what I mean is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and yours and mine. So I desire to come 
to be with you, to impart some spiritual gift to you, that you might be strengthened. What I mean is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both you and me. Paul desires to come to them so that he can strengthen and encourage them and so that they can encourage him in his faith and thereby strengthen him. What a beautiful picture, beloved, of the body of Christ. Paul is, after all, an apostle called by God to be one, commissioned by Jesus commissioned for the establishment of the church, commissioned to teach, to write with authority, commissioned, in Paul's case, uniquely, to write revelation from God. You don't need me to tell you how many books of our New Testament were written by the Apostle Paul, inspired of the Holy Spirit. He was set apart for the ministry of the gospel. So certainly, it seems appropriate and only logical that he would go to Rome in order to impart a spiritual gift to the Roman Christians, to strengthen them. But notice that he also writes of how they will encourage him in his faith. We talk here regularly about how we need each other. It's not our idea. We are in need. We, the saints, are in need of the body of Christ. Every single one of us. Paul knew this. Paul was keenly aware of how a Christian or even a congregation could be discouraged in this life. How easily the saints might find themselves in difficulty, in sin even, in despair. Think of his thorn in the flesh that he writes of in 2 Corinthians 12. He writes of this thorn in the flesh that is obviously causing him pain, metaphorically speaking, causing him difficulty. He pleads with the Lord to take it away. And the Lord effectively says, no, my grace is sufficient for you. My power, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Or think of when the Apostle Paul wrote these words. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. That's 2 Corinthians 1. Saints, we need the body of Christ. We are not meant to do this thing alone. And to say that we need the body of Christ, as we're going to see even more in just a moment, is not a slap in the face to the Holy Spirit. Because He is the very one who says that we need the church. Life in the body, life in the fellowship of the saints is how we're sustained in this pilgrimage. It's how we grow. It's how we're protected. It's how we're encouraged. Not sure how you're doing this morning. Not sure what's in your mind and heart. Maybe you're doing really well. And if that's true, praise the Lord. We should be thankful in seasons when we're doing well. But even if you're doing well this morning, there will come a time, friend, when you will not be. Suffering is a guarantee in this life. In the body of Christ, you see, we bear one another up. The saints bear one another up in the Lord. We see this in a number of ways, but I'll just give one. Even now in corporate worship. Sometimes you may come in these doors for a service such as this, and things are really hard. Your heart may be breaking, and you're thinking, you know, I... I'm having a hard time singing. I'm having a hard time singing. But there are people behind you, to your left, to your right, and in front of you who are singing. 
And you are born up in the saints, praising the Lord in song alongside you. There may be times you come in these doors and you have struggled to pray. And you sit and you listen to brothers and sisters pray on our behalf. Thanking God. Praising Him for who He is. Confessing sin. Bringing our requests and our needs to the Lord. When we are having a hard time articulating any of that. You may be having a time where you come in these doors and you're struggling with what you believe. And you sit in a service like this and you hear other brothers and sisters confess the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And their voices, as it were, bear you up in believing. In the body of Christ, the faith of our brothers and sisters encourages our own faith. Especially when our faith is weak. Praise God again for those times when our faith is strong. I apologize, I'm having trouble with this microphone. But there are times, we all know this, where our faith feels low. My faith may be low today, but the faith in my brother or sister's heart may be strong. And a word that they speak can be of great encouragement. I remember one time having a conversation with a brother and sitting on the tailgate of my truck, he was lamenting the weakness of his faith. And he said, you know, man, I, I, feel, like, I feel like my faith is just propped up on everybody else. My faith is propped up on the faith of my brothers and sisters. I feel like my faith is so weak and I'm leaning on everybody around me. He was grieving this, which on the one hand is understandable, which I acknowledged, and on the other hand I said, brother, you speak better than you know because you are beautifully describing the fact that we all need one another in the faith. And the faith of our brothers and sisters is of great encouragement to our own faith. Paul knew that. Colossians 3.16 Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now how are you going to do that? What does he say? What does the scripture say? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. You're going to do that. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. We're going to do that together. Ephesians chapter 2, 19 to 22. We together, all of us, are members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, is grown into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, we also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And then there's Ephesians 4 that was read in our midst this morning. Christ instituted the church and gave gifts to the church, so that the saints would be equipped. So that we might all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we might no longer be children, immature, tossed around by trials and by every wind of strange teaching. So that speaking the truth in love, we might grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. He is the one, Christ is, who empowers our growth together through our union with him and with one another. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Amen to all of that. This Christian life, saints, is a corporate thing. And we need one another. Paul, as an apostle, he knew that. 
He believed that. He wrote that. He taught that. Put your eyes back on the text, verses 13 and 14. Paul reiterates. He wants the saints in Rome to know, as if he already hasn't been clear, how he has often desired to come to be with them. And he makes it clear why he has not been able to come. The ministry to which he's been commissioned is what has kept him from coming. He has been called, after all, to preach the gospel and help establish churches amongst the Gentiles, non-Jews. He's been called to do so among the Greeks and non-Greeks. So when you hear barbarians, when you read that word, it's non-Greeks. You're Greeks, wise, sophisticated, civilized, educated, and then non-Greeks who were none of those things. Doesn't matter. Paul's called to them all to preach and to establish the church. It's a sweet reminder that neither status nor gender nor race nor station in life are relevant when it comes to the kingdom of Christ. Much that could be said about unity amongst the people and how Christ is the only thing that can really give it. He has ransomed the people from every tribe, language, and nation. All of his people are in equal need of him, and all of his people are one in him. And Paul, in seeking to establish churches amongst all the Gentiles, has been prevented from coming to Rome. Now verse 15. Having acknowledged that his ministry obligations have kept him from coming to Rome up to this point, He's going to again say what he desires to come to Rome to do. Should he be able to make it? What's his plan? He's already said that he desires to be able to impart some spiritual gift to the saints, that they all, the saints and him, might be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. And now in verse 15, he says that he is eager to preach the gospel to those who are in Rome, to you who are in Rome. To whom exactly? To the recipients of this letter, right? I desire to preach the gospel to you. To those who comprise the church in Rome. In other words, I think you guys are tracking with me. He's coming to preach the gospel to those who are already Christians. And of course, to any unbelievers who might be in their midst. Paul is eager to come preach the gospel to the saints. It seems that Paul understood that the saints needed the gospel. Think about the content of this letter. He's writing to a church, to people who have trusted Christ. And what does he spill ink on? We're going to think about that in a minute. Paul understood that the saints needed the gospel. Romans makes it clear. People who had already heard the gospel and had believed it needed the gospel. Converts already won needed the gospel. To Paul, the gospel was clearly not just the entry point to the Christian life. Something that occurred back there, and now we move on to other things. Romans makes it clear that Paul did not think that way. How different that is from the perspective of many in the church these days. Paul has a design, a plan, an agenda in going to Rome. It's very clear that he was not going to be a cheerleader or a motivational speaker or some kind of life coach. He wasn't going to Rome either to simply teach the saints how to live Christianly. The rest of the letter shows that he desired to go to Rome to bring the gospel as a source to the saints of encouragement and strength. He wanted to bring, in other words, spiritual sustenance. Namely, Jesus Christ, 
the manna from heaven, the living water, to those who were hungering and thirsting for righteousness. He would preach the good news to the church. A couple of things briefly before we move on. This is from me as one of your pastors to our congregation. Two things here before we move on to part two. Number one, we do not ever move on from the gospel. We don't ever, may we never move on from the gospel. The only reason that we ever would is if we think there is something more powerful than the power of God unto salvation. The only reason we ever would move on from the gospel is if we think we have a righteousness other than the righteousness of Christ. The only reason we ever would move on from the gospel is if we think salvation is in fact earned that we need to work for it, and that we actually can do that work. The only reason we ever would move on from the gospel is if we think that God justifies godly people and that we are of that number. The only reason we ever would move on from the gospel is if we think that we could stand in the judgment of a heavenly tribunal. Our record, our works, our righteousness before the one whose light makes the heavens seem dim. Before the one whose holiness not even angels can stand. Before the one whose standard is perfection. Before the one who shows no partiality. Saints, we never move on from the gospel. That's one. Two. Secondly, we also preach the law. We use it lawfully, 1 Timothy 1.8. First, we use the law as a mirror to show us our sin, to show us who we are, what we are in Adam, to cause us to despair of our own righteousness. You understand, in this life, not all despair is bad. That you would despair of your own righteousness is grace. It's a good thing. We preach the law that way. That we might despair of our own righteousness and that we might be driven to Christ, who's the only one who's ever kept it and the only one who has ever made satisfaction for the sins of man. The law can be tough. But then we preach the law as our guide in Christ. No longer under its condemnation. You understand this? The law for the saints is a joyful, good thing. Somebody say amen. Why? Because we are no longer under its condemnation. It doesn't have teeth to devour us in Christ. We're no longer under it to be condemned or justified by it. Thereby, we are able to seek conformity unto it in Christ by the Spirit. Not living under some kind of written code, but delighting in God's law in our inner man. Living by faith in the Son of God. We are conformed unto the good and holy law that the Lord has given this is the apostolic pattern, beloved. We see it throughout the epistles. We never move on from the gospel. We live from our justified status. We live from our union with Christ. We pursue righteousness. We flee from sin. The law guides our sanctification. And only the Spirit, via union with Christ, can empower it. That's how the apostles wrote that's how Paul writes in Romans. We're going to see it. Let's anticipate that. So that's part one. 
We're now moving on to part two. This is kind of the, effectively, the flyover of Romans. So just prepare yourselves. So how is it that Paul's introduced and set up his letter? He's a slave of Christ, he says. Called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God that was promised beforehand by the prophets in the scriptures. That gospel concerns God's son, who descended from David according to the flesh, who was declared to be the son of God in power at the resurrection. We thought about that in depth two weeks ago. It's through Christ that the apostles have received grace and their apostolic office to the end that people of all nations would believe in Jesus. Paul then greets the Roman Christians with grace and peace. That's verses 1 to 7. Then he thanks God through Christ for them on account of their faith. He expresses his affection for them and his desire to come see them. He wants to impart a gift to them that he and they might mutually encourage one another in the faith, and he wants to come and preach the gospel to them. That's how he sets the letter up, and then he goes in. This, just, if you want to turn through Romans, you're welcome to do it. I would encourage you to just listen, track with me. This is what Paul, inspired by the Spirit, wants these dear saints, these treasured ones of God, to know. He begins by saying that he is not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, Jew or Greek, Jew or Gentile. In the gospel, he says, the righteousness of God is revealed beginning and ending in faith. In other words, the righteousness of Christ given to sinners received by faith. Gentiles everywhere, he says, are under the wrath of God and have been given over to their passions and given over to a debased mind. But Jews also stand guilty. They practice the same things they judge the Gentiles for and thereby condemn themselves. God, says Paul, is a just and impartial judge. He will reward those who do good with eternal life. He will punish those who do evil with wrath forever. All who sin without the law, Gentiles, will perish. They are a law, he says, unto themselves because they at times do what the law requires because it's written into the fabric of man. And those who have the law, mostly Jews, dishonor God by breaking it. And it is not the hearers of the law who will be justified, but the doers of the law. Here's the thing. Says Paul, that's a problem. That is a problem. Because no one, not even one, is good. No one has ever kept the law. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, no one does good, not even one. Not even one, bro, not even one. All we are good at as fallen humans is shedding blood, envying one another, and destroying each other with our tongues. Ruin and misery or our default setting. We don't know peace, and we don't fear God. God's law shuts everyone's mouth, and the whole world is accountable to God who gave the law. No human being, just to be clear, will ever be justified in God's sight by the works of the law. In this fallen world, the law exposes sin and names it, calls it what it is, and shows the depth of it. This thing's killing me today. Sorry, yo. We may... Let's see. We're going to try. There is grace for even technological difficulty. Amen? Amen. Here we go. We are not going to lose steam here. The law, I'm going to just recap the last two things. The law shuts everyone's mouth. 
The entire world is held accountable to God who gave it, and no human being will ever be justified by it. Because all the law does in a fallen world is show us the depth of our need, the depth of our corruption. It outlines and names sin and shows it for what it is. But, how, you're asking, how will anyone ever then be justified? That's the question. That's what you should be asking. That's what Paul is setting up in Romans 1-3. to How will anyone ever be justified? The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Though the law and the prophets, the scriptures, bear witness to it. What righteousness is that? The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Every human being has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one has kept the law. And so everyone, says Paul, who is justified, is justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is only found in Jesus. Again, remember, he is writing to Christians. Don't forget this. Jesus is the propitiation. That's a word that means the satisfaction for the sins of his people to be received by faith. We are justified by faith in Christ apart from works of the law. Our justification is not earned. It's a gift. We don't work. We receive. And God, for his part, is in the business of justifying ungodly people, not godly ones, because they don't exist. Not godly enough to be justified. We are not righteous. We are sinful. Christ, however, was perfectly righteous. And what he did in keeping the law and dying for our sins is counted to ungodly people by faith. And so, what does that mean? It means that we have peace with God now and in the future. We know this how? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. While we were still weak, sinners, enemies of God, Christ died for us. That's how we know. We have been justified by the blood of Christ and we will be saved by him from the wrath of God. That's how we know. All of this is possible because Jesus becomes our representative by faith. Adam represented us all in the garden. And just like we would have done if we were him, ruined us all. But by faith, we are no longer in Adam. We are in Christ. Just as Adam represented man, it is legitimate that Jesus represents all those who trust in him. Through his obedience, we are counted obedient through his perfect righteousness, we are counted perfectly righteous. Where the law increased sin by exposing it and the depth of it, grace abounded all the more through Jesus Christ. That's a good word. Now, because this is what we do as fallen people, we wig out over that, and we go all kinds of bad places with that, and we object. Paul anticipates an objection. So we should just continue in sin then, right? If where the law increased the trespass because of the work of Christ, grace abounded all the more, we should just go on and continue in sin then, right? By no means, he says. How does he ground that answer? It's an important thing. By no means because we have been united to Jesus. We have been baptized into Christ. We have been raised to walk in newness of life in him. We have been set free from the bondage and the tyranny of sin unto righteousness. No longer under the condemnation of the law, but under grace. And we have become obedient from the heart. In Christ, 
We have died to the law. His death is our death. When he died on the cross, it is as though we died bearing the punishment of a lawbreaker. And so, we are no longer under the law to be justified or condemned by it. We have a new identity now. A new life. A given life. And so, because of those spiritual realities, and because of the fact that the corrupt nature still is with us, not only do we have a new hope, a new identity and a new life, we have a new war on our hands. This side of the resurrection, there is an internal, irreconcilable war between the spirit and the flesh. The law is good. All Christians agree. The law is holy. All Christians agree. There is no problem whatsoever with the law. All Christians agree. The problem is with us because we struggle to do what it says. We desire to do good because we're born again. But we often find ourselves doing evil because we still have a corrupt flesh. We don't want to do evil, yet we often find ourselves doing it. And this is because of sin in us, says Paul. The corrupt nature is still with us. We delight in God's law in our inner man. By the way, the only way a person could delight in the law in his inner man is if he knows that he has been justified, forgiven, and absolved of guilt. You do not rejoice and delight over things that are your death sentence. We delight in God's law in our inner man, but there is another law waging war against our spirit, making us captive to the law of sin in our flesh. Wretched men and women that we are, who will deliver us from these bodies of death? Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is because Christ came and accomplished what the law, weakened by sin, could never accomplish. This is because in Christ, by the Spirit, we have been set free from the law of sin and death. Justice has been satisfied, payment made, the law fulfilled by a human being named Jesus of Nazareth. And all of this is ours, and we now walk by the Spirit, not the flesh. We are now heirs of a kingdom and of eternal life with Christ. We've been adopted into the family of God. We didn't have a name before. If anything, we had the name sinner. But we've been given a new name now. We didn't have an inheritance we're now going to inherit an unshakable kingdom, right? In Christ Jesus, these things are true. For now, though, there will be suffering. The creation is groaning, and so are we. You know it. I know it. But the present sufferings, beloved, are not worth comparing to the glory that awaits. There is a day coming for which we eagerly wait, a day in which our adoption will be ultimately realized, our bodies will be raised, we will put on immortality and incorruptibility. That is the hope of the Christian. Nothing short of bodily resurrection, life forever in the new heavens and the new earth with God, seeing Christ as he is, is the hope of the saints. Right now, we hope for things unseen, and we wait. The Spirit, though, helps us. He intercedes for us in our groanings, and we can trust the Lord. Why? Because salvation is certain. All things will work together for the eternal good of those who love God and are called by him. 
We have been justified. We will be conformed into Christ's image. We will be glorified. And this is God's plan from before the ages began. And so now, who can be against us? No one. Who can bring a charge against us? No one. Who can condemn us? No one. The one who will sit on the judgment seat is the one who died for us. More than that, who was raised and is interceding for us even now. And nothing, and by nothing we mean nothing, can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not suffering, not death, not the evil one, not even our own sinning. Now it's true that the Jews, by and large, have rejected Jesus the Messiah. Paul was greatly grieved over that. And on top of that, it raises a big question. If Israel, the people of God, are dying apart from the Christ, if they're not being saved, how can we know that God will keep any of his promises? If he didn't keep his promises to Israel, because Jews are dying without salvation, what do we think? It is not as though the word of God has failed, says Paul. Because God is saving the remnant of Israel that he had always planned to save. The Jews had zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They sought to establish their own righteousness under the law, rather than submitting to God's righteousness given to them in the Messiah. In God's plan, Jesus is the end of the law for righteousness. He is his people's righteousness. Everyone who calls on his name, therefore, will be saved. Only those who believe in him can call on him, though. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. This is how people come to call on him. When his power and his office and his mercy and his grace are extolled. God has not rejected his people that he foreknew. There are Israelites being saved, of whom Paul was one. There are Gentiles that are being grafted in to God's plan of salvation. And the book is not written on Israel yet. In all of this, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God are incalculable. And he is worthy of all praise and honor and glory. And so now, in the church, you see this pattern? You see the pattern. Here is the good news. Here is justification, union with Christ, the sovereign grace of God from all of eternity and now. Church, let's talk about how we're going to live together. So now in the church, we are to live lives that are commensurate with this gospel of God's Son. We are to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. We use the gifts God has given us in service to the body of Christ for the good of our brothers and sisters. We love one another. We hold fast to what is good. We cling to it with all our might and we abhor what is evil. We rejoice in the hope of the Lord. We patiently endure suffering. We pray throughout it all. We rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We take care of one another's needs and we practice hospitality. We live in unity and harmony with one another. We don't avenge ourselves, but we give that and trust that and leave that to the Lord. We submit to the authority God has put over us, including the governing ones. We do no wrong to a neighbor, but instead we love them. And in so doing, we live in accord with the law. We bear with those who are weak. And we especially consider them. We don't pass judgment on one another over matters of conscience. We are careful not to cause others to sin. We welcome one another and live in harmony, glorifying God together. All the while, we watch out for those who cause division in the church. 
We guard sound teaching. We pursue what God says is good. We flee from what God says is evil. And we do all of this taking heart that God will soon crush Satan under our feet. And we take heart that God is able to strengthen us for all of this according to the gospel and through the preaching of Jesus Christ. That's Romans. It's quite a letter. That's what Paul wanted the saints in Rome to know. That in and of itself is instructive for us. The truth of God does not change, beloved. In light of what we've considered today, the corporate nature of the Christian life, clinging to Christ together, the apostolic pattern of union with Christ, fueling, sustaining, propelling the Christian life, never moving on from the gospel, I want to leave you with two other good words from two different apostles. So just listen to these words. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these? clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Amen. These are the promises of our ever-loving, faithful God. We are about to come and receive from his table. And as we prepare ourselves to do that, let's pray together.